you dig even deeper into who George was, oh, he was a humanitarian. I mean, he volunteered his services at the Salvation Army. He helped cook for the homeless. He choked George to death. He made him gasp for air until there was nothing left. One of our medical experts that we retained in our civil case said that George was murdered in the same way had he been lynched, hanging from a tree. Welcome back to Parallel Justice, the podcast that dives into the crimes and cases that have dominated the national headlines through exclusive interviews with the very attorneys who fought the cases. Some of the discussion you hear today may be controversial. However, we know that silence, especially on tough issues, only enables and encourages wrongdoers. It's our goal to bring these issues to light so that we may have meaningful discourse around them. The views expressed in this podcast are those of our guests, who are experts in these areas. Their opinions are invaluable, however, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. The topics we discuss may be disturbing, and they are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering, and we encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. I'm Renee Williams, Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime, and your guide through this conversation. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. As always, I'm your host, Renee Williams, the Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We have a special treat today. We have a special guest joining us to discuss what has frankly been a groundbreaking and headline case. But before we get into that, I'm going to let him introduce himself. We have with us Tony Romanucci of Romanucci and Blandon out of Chicago. Tony, why don't you say hello to everyone? Oh, thanks so much, Renee. I really appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. There isn't much more to know about me. I'm I'm Tony from Chicago. Um, I ride as uh, Tony the attorney on Peloton. So if anybody rides Peloton and they want to look me up, they can find me, Tony the attorney from Chicago. That's it. I think that's the first time we've had a Peloton shout out. I feel like I need to give mine away now, which is NAY311. Um, but there you go. <laughs> we are here to talk about a very serious case. And, and as I previewed it, it was a headline case and you couldn't miss a reference to this for the past few years. We're here to talk about George Floyd. There were images of him splashed everywhere. And we talked a lot about what happened. And I hate that we do that as a society. So Tony, I just want to start off by talking about him as a person. Who was he as a human being? Who who was his family? Give us some background on him because he's really not discussed enough outside of his death. Well, Renee, I'm so glad you started out about asking about George because everybody knows about what happened to George. And then they rely on misinformation as to who he was as a person before he was murdered. And for you to give him the dignity of asking who he was, I think is admirable because George Floyd was a human being. Um, He had a soul and he was a good person. He did have uh, a little bit of a maligned past, but he he had gotten over all of that. And he was an adored father, an even more adored brother to his brothers and sisters, Um, an uncle Brandon Williams, who really became uh, the face, one of the faces, along with Philonis Floyd of the George Floyd 
you know, trials. You know, Brandon absolutely, you know, worshipped George. And that's because he was a really good man. And then if you dig even deeper into who George was, oh, he was a humanitarian. I mean, he volunteered his services at the Salvation Army. He helped cook for the homeless. Um, he went to football games and basketball games um, with people in the Minnesota area, Minneapolis area, um, who had never been to games before. So he was a very good person, a humanitarian. And I cannot tell you how upsetting it is how many times I've heard people approach me during the George Floyd case and say, yeah, but he was a criminal. Uh, yeah, but he was um, a drug abuser. Uh, the yeah, but, you know, lawyers love using yeah, but, okay? Well, there is no yeah, but here because none of his yeah, buts led to his murder, okay? Let's get this straight right now. Um, whatever yeah buts he had in his future or, or in his past were all behind him and none of that played a causal role in his murder. None of it whatsoever. Anybody who says that, anybody who says the yeah but, well, what they're really looking for is an excuse for his murder. And we're not going to tolerate that. Not I will tolerate it, nor as a society should we tolerate it. Well, and I think the real yeah, but is yeah, but he was black. We can go there with that because if it was, you know, uh, me, if it was me who had passed the $20 bill, uh, a phony fake $20 bill, would I, would I have had a gun pointed at my head for doing that? Would I have been basically hogtied and, and thrown into a squad car because I didn't want to go in there? Would I have been prone restraint? Would I have been kneeled on? No. But I'm glad you brought up having the gun pointed at his head, having him basically hogtied. A lot of people only know the last few minutes where there was a knee placed on his neck. They don't know the full story. So can you tell us what happened the day he died? Why were the police even there? And how did events unfold? Yeah, it, it's really tragic when when you look back and you and you understand a little bit more of the story as to how the police arrived there and the horrific guilt that one person in particular has as a result of everything that happened. So keeping in mind that George was there with a couple of his, you know, he was there with his girlfriend and another friend. And when they were at the corner of 38th and Chicago, they went into Cup Foods. And you may or may not have seen the video of him inside Cup Foods. He was, um, you know, walking up and down the aisle. They knew him there. It was banter. And he had paid for some items. And evidently, the, um, the young man who was 17 or 18 years old, you know, after George had paid him, he looked at the $20 bill and, you know, kind of thought that it didn't look real. And so he wound up calling the police. He went out and, you know, saw where George was. The police came. And, you know, the first image um, that George had of the police, if I can paint this picture for you, George was sitting in the front seat of his car. And Officer Lane is the one who approached George with his gun drawn and pointed at George's head. So the first 
sign that George saw of a um, law enforcement officer on the scene when he turned his head over his left shoulder and looked, he saw the barrel of a gun staring at his eyeballs. And what was this for? This was for basically, I'm not even sure that it was that it's on the same level as a speeding ticket. It may have even been lower. They call it a municipal violation. There's no jail time. There's no crime. It's it's a municipal offense. Um, but 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 rather the Minneapolis Police Department, their disparate treatment of marginalized people, someone like George, who's not only black, um, but but also did have some some drug abuse issues at the time. That's how they treated them. They treated them with force, immediate force. That is a use of force. Pointing a gun at someone's head is a use of force under the Fourth Amendment because it's considered a seizure. And the Fourth Amendment defines a seizure as any any type of activity that does not allow you to freely leave the scene. And so when you have a gun pointed at your head, you can reasonably assume as a citizen that the police is not allowing you to leave the scene. So George was seized. And sure enough, once they got him out of the car, they handcuffed him, they sat him down, and then they called for assistance. They called for more units because they had to, you know, really prosecute this municipal offense. And and sure enough, that's when Derek Chauvin and 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 Tu Tao arrived. And and Tu Tao was the officer that we see standing in the street, kind of like throwing interference, kind of being he was the one throwing the pick, if we're gonna use basketball language, throwing the pick uh for the other three officers and the civilians. So you would see him move as civilians were moving, trying to prevent anybody from getting to uh, the murder of George Floyd. So Darnella was the was the young lady who really showed the world what happened. If it wasn't for Darnella's video, we would have had a much different narrative. And by the way, we did have a very much different narrative that came out before Darnella's video uh, came out the following morning. Um, so that that just Again, it, it just shows that the police officers will lie in order to justify the outcome. So if it wasn't for Darnella's video, we would have had a much different narrative and probably a much different outcome to what happened. So Darnella's video did not show Lane and uh, King, who were the ones kneeling on George's back. And she won a Pulitzer or an honorary Pulitzer for that, I think. I, I believe she did. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about the police officers and talk about the cases against them. But we're going to go through this slowly because I think it's very confusing in the general public, the difference between federal cases and state cases versus even civil cases. So Derek Chauvin, what was he charged with? on a state level and then on a federal level. So the first charges that came out against Derek Chauvin were the state level charges. Those are the ones that you would expect to come out. So he was charged with um, second degree murder, third degree murder, and also second degree manslaughter. Um, so all of them 
have, you know, different levels of potential, you know, prison time. You know, the second second degree murder charge is um, basically the murder charge where you don't have the what's called scienter or the knowledge of forethought of committing a murder. So I don't think that anybody ever thought that Derek Chauvin, prior to his arriving on the scene, had any intent to murder George Floyd. But once he arrived on the scene, that's where his intent began. So he did not have what's, what's, what's you know, the knowledge of forethought of, of committing the murder. But once he began his knee on the neck of George Floyd, it should have been known to him that continuing to have a knee on the neck would cause death. And in fact, that's what ultimately he was convicted of. Because, because Derek Chauvin was convicted of all three counts, he was convicted of second degree murder, the third degree murder, and the second degree manslaughter. Well, the second degree murder supersedes the other ones. So the other charges, he didn't get um, sentenced on the other charges, but he got sentenced for 22 and a half years on the second degree murder charge. There was a lot of controversy when the verdict came out um, about what it meant. So what do you think that the jury believed and, and what were where were they going with that verdict? Well, I don't think there's any question that they believed uh, that there was no doubt that what the video showed. And, and, and here's where I'll digress just for a moment, Renee, is during this same period of time on a parallel track, you know, we're, we are working the civil case. And although, you know, we we didn't have a role in the criminal case, we, we certainly were following the criminal case very closely. But at the same time that we were preparing our civil case, we were immersed in mock trials and focus groups. And we knew that the, the civil team knew way before the criminal trial even started that the video told the whole story. The video carried the day. We knew that there was no way that um, Derek Chauvin was going to be able to escape what the video showed, and that is that he kneeled on somebody for nine and a half minutes and that a child would know that you don't choke someone to death. I mean, you know, I, 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 I have compared what Derek Chauvin has done to what a python does to a chicken. He, 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 he choked, he choked George to death. He made him gasp for air until there was nothing left. So, you know, that, that's kind of what really what we learned even before the criminal trial is that there was going to be very, very little escape from from the knee on the neck. And, and of course, in the background, you have the two officers who are kneeling on his back, preventing air from entering into his lungs. And you have Derek Chauvin blocking any blood flow to his brain. So George is, is getting murdered. He's getting killed in two different ways here, if not even more. And I want to put a pin in that because Chauvin was trained to do that. And he knew absolutely what he was doing correct that's a great great uh reminder because 
Derek Chauvin was an 18-year veteran of the Minneapolis Police Department. And during the time that he was in the Minneapolis Police Department, he had been trained <clears throat> in killology. Killology is pretty much what it sounds like, like biology, physiology. Killology is the science of killing. Is it really a science? No, but that's the name that it was given. And killology are tactics that are used in wartime, in hand-to-hand -hand combat, to ensure that your opponent doesn't get the upper hand and kills you. The object is to kill your opponent before he kills you. If you Google killology, I, I just want to give everybody something to do in their spare time. Um, there are some yeah. really horrific things written about it. Like officers saying they went home and had the best sex of their life after executing it. Um, a man saying, I don't teach how to kill. I teach mindfulness to kill. Yeah. This is this is this is really sick stuff. I mean, it's almost it's almost like you're what I'm hearing almost like a snuff movie, right? That that's what it sounds like. It, it's it's really disgusting. And what happened is that police officers started training on killology, and MPD actually trained on killology. The 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 one 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 of the the union chief. His name escapes me right now. Uh, but the union chief for the Minneapolis Police Department was a trainer on killology, and Derek Chauvin had been trained in killology. MPD uh, banned killology uh, about a year or two before George Floyd died. But the point that I've always made is that once you become muscle trained in something, it's very hard to deprogram, right? It's very hard to deprogram somebody to not do something that they've been trained to do year after year after year. And so when, 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 when Chauvin began his restraint on George, he knew exactly what the pressure point was, and that's the carotid artery. So this wasn't just a prone restraint. We have to understand that. A prone restraint would have been George um, having been on his, on, his, um, on his stomach and on his chest, and them holding him down. That would have been a prone restraint. This was not only a prone restraint, but a carotid restraint. And I'll even paint more of a picture um, for you, Renee. And, and that, if, if you have the mental picture, if the audience has the mental picture of Derek Chauvin's knee on George's neck, so I want you to kind of pull your memories back a little bit and see if you can have that mental image of the knee on the neck on the carotid artery. And now what I want you to do is take that mental image and turn it 90 degrees counterclockwise. Okay. So that, so that George's head is up in the air. One of our medical experts that we retained in our civil case said that George was murdered in the same way had he been lynched, hanging from a tree. The same method of death. That is a lesson in killology. And I just want to give everyone a minute to let that sink in. Now, 
you had the honor of representing the Floyd family in a civil case. And I think there were a lot of things that probably came up and I want to talk about them, but I, I want to start with Chauvin as an officer. Was he a known danger to that department? Was he a known bad cop? Mm, bad cop might be a strong word. Was he a known overly aggressive cop? I mean, I don't know that, you know, bad cop is overly aggressive. Was he the best cop? Clearly not. Um, and, and I'm going to use a word right now that applies um, to the Minneapolis Police Department and to many other departments across the country. And that's the word impunity. And so when a police officer learns by behavior that he can get away with bad behavior with impunity what will happen is that behavior will repeat itself over and over because there is no expectation that he will be disciplined or punished or reprimanded in any significant way so therefore you repeat the behavior you know if a child knows that he can go and steal candy every day um, he's going to continue to steal the candy until someone you know, taps his hand and says, no, no, that's not appropriate. You know, let's substitute your candy with a piece of fruit instead, right? Let's make it healthy. So um, Derek Chauvin had a known history of use of force, uh, unreasonable uses of force, and never having been reprimanded or disciplined in any manner whatsoever. And what we've learned now, because of so much of what I can say has been validated, is that the Minneapolis Police Department um, did this as a pattern and practice. This was their practice. They would routinely uh, skirt bad behavior, uh, let it go, and officers would go back out on the street and they would basically abuse uh, the people that they knew. If anybody has seen The Wire, which is really one of the you know best-based uh, police shows uh, that I've seen. Wire's about as close as you can get to reality. I mean, that is that is a show that was way ahead of its time and was very very prescient on many of its um, many of its themes and issues that it dealt with. And and the same thing with Minneapolis. I can say the same thing about Chicago. Chicago is under consent decree now. Minneapolis um, will be under consent decree very soon. They're under a state consent decree. Seattle's under consent decree. Portland's under consent decree. I'm not sure if New Orleans consent decree is, is finished or not. But when you're under consent decree, that means that you're kind of doing bad stuff. Your police department is acting pretty badly, so badly, that somebody else has to come in and monitor you and audit you uh, to make sure that you actually perform good policing. And in this specific case, Chauvin had 18 complaints against him, including he's pled guilty to violating a 14 year old child's civil rights. Um, how much of that was ignored by the police or was he ever reprimanded? No, I mean, our, our investigation showed that he was never, ever reprimanded. And in fact, when he was charged federally, he was also charged and he pled guilty to willfully depriving a 14-year-old child of his constitutional rights. 
Think of what I just said. He he abused a child. He was such a big man, right? He was so bold in what he did that he abused a 14-year-old child. And he pled guilty to it. He admitted that he did it. So if he's going to abuse a 14-year-old child, think of who else he's abused that didn't report him. You, you only talked about the ones that were reported. How many others did he abuse who never wanted to come forward? I would probably say 10 times that amount. And Tony, I think that's an incredible point. And I want to stop us there today because I want to give everybody an opportunity to sit and think about that. How many more victims and children could there have been? We are about out of time today, but fortunately, Tony has already agreed to join us for next week's episode. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you have any questions about your rights after listening to the show, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org. Our guest's information is also always available in the show notes. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association. More information about both organizations is available at victimsofcrime.org and victimbar.org. Thank you, and please join us again next week.